It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It was just a month and a half ago that uh, Moby Dick was uh, celebrating an anniversary. And if you think about it, how many other novels are celebrated, studied, debated, discussed, written about, talked about for over 150 years? I suspect the uh, list is relatively short, which is one of the many things that makes that classic by Herman Melville uh, such a classic. And uh, like so many great cinematic, uh, so many great literary expeditions, it not only causes us to examine ourselves and our own human instincts, but it has led to a lot of great cinematic interpretations. For instance, you remember the version of Moby Dick back in the 1950s with the great Gregory Peck as a Captain Ahab? Eyes now, ye white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. The birds. The birds! He rises! Is there anybody better than Gregory Peck? I think not. I was really eager to talk with Richard J. King. He is an author and an illustrator who's written several books, including Ahab's Rolling Sea, A Natural History of Moby Dick. Richard, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me on. So, Richard, how did you get started written, writing about uh, the creatures of the ocean, including, the, including some of the creatures in Moby Dick? Yeah, I never would have thought I would have ended up being a literature of the sea person or even going to sea. I grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia, suburban kid, and even in college, didn't go to sea or anything like that. But then I got a teaching job um, right after college on a high school semester at sea that traveled all around the Pacific. And I'd never been on a ship before. It turns out they were just basically looking for people that were willing to leave their homes for 11 months and could teach English. And so I went on this tall ship out of Vancouver and traveled all around the Pacific. And uh, that was actually the first time that I hadn't read Moby Dick in college. And uh, I was just looking for, it's actually kind of ridiculous. I was looking for books that I could teach on the ship. And like, and that when I was in a foreign port, we were actually in Sydney, Australia. And I was like, Oh gosh, I was at the bookstore. Like what, what, set of books could I get? I was like, oh, Moby Dick, how hard could that be to read? And so, you know, I got to set it out for the class and read it for the first time. And it was so special to be able to read it at sea on a on a square rig ship and even seeing whales out at sea. And ever since then, I was just totally hooked and fascinated by the ocean and and about writers that wrote about that space. No, I, I can imagine that would have been uh, quite an experience. 
So um, just so folks know, I think most people, whether they've seen the film, whether they've read the book, or even if they haven't, they probably know the story where uh, Captain Ahab has this zeal uh, to go after a giant sperm whale like Moby Dick. How realistic is Moby Dick? Do sperm whales or any kind of whales, do they really attack people like in Moby Dick? Yeah, I mean, that was basically what I did with Ahab's Rolling Sea is try to look and see sort of what did Melville represent accurately? What would he have known? And how did he sort of twist it into his fiction? And Melville had been to sea himself. He'd spent over three years in the Pacific. He'd worked on three different whale ships. And so he really was coming from a place when he sat down and wrote Moby Dick as a real expert, someone who really had been to sea himself. And also he was a huge, huge reader. So he really combined both of those things, the sort of experience as well as the sort of scholarly and literary background. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and so so one of the major stories uh, many listeners might have heard about is the wreck of the whale ship Essex, where a sperm whale did actually smash into a whale ship in the 1820s. And that was very much a part of um, Melville's story, kind of working that, actual story into his fictional one. Paint the picture for us in terms of what was going on with respect to the whaling industry at the time. In eight, in the 1850s, how significant a part of the global economy was whaling? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, when Melville wrote, Melville writes uh, Moby Dick in 1851, uh, but he had gone to see himself in the 1840s. And that's sort of where he more or less set his novel. And that really was the absolute high point of whaling. In terms of percentage of the American economy, I couldn't really say, but I could tell you that you're looking at about over 10,000 Americans are sailing on over 700 ships every year out at sea. And it's enormous in terms of, you know, that's obviously pre-ground petroleum, And so that's what people are using. They're using whale oil to lubricate machinery. They're using it to light their lamps. Um, So it really is a major part of the the economy, particularly in the, uh, you know, in the New England, New York area. Was Moby Dick a hit right away or like what happens with some authors and some literary works? It wasn't a, a widely read novel until later. Yeah, total bomb. Yeah, it was just it was like. Yeah, Total Bomb. He Melville had had a couple books that were pretty successful right when he came back from the Pacific, and they were very autobiographical and talked about sort of life in the Pacific Islands and a little bit of whaling. But in Moby Dick, he he was trying to really write something of you know sort of hard literature, like he really wanted to write a masterpiece, and it just fell super flat. No one was ready for it at all, and you know there were a couple people that liked it. But it wasn't really until the after World War One and the modernist and people start to go back and look at mm. what Melville was doing in Moby Dick and kind of thought about fascism and thought about sort of experimenting with different uh, fictional forms where they start to really go back and appreciate uh, in particular Moby Dick. So it wasn't until the last century that w- Mel that uh, Moby Dick was widely read. Totally. Yeah. Wow. yeah. It was uh, a to- it was a total bomb. And, you know, for for New York listeners, it's kind of interesting because after Moby Dick, you know, <laughs> Melville pretty much, he kept writing a little bit, but the, his his novels and his poetry just kept getting more and more 
obscure. And he basically pretty much just left writing for the rest of his life and worked as, um, you know, on the river, basically, uh, you know, uh, for as a customs officer. Wow. Uh, that's wild. I, I had uh, I had no idea. One of the most famous novelists of all time uh, could barely make a living as a novelist. Why did Melville, I know you said he worked on, uh, you know, on, on the oceans and was had some experience on whaling ships and so forth. Why did he choose to make sort of the whale at least one of the villains in the in the in the uh, in the book i guess some people would say ahab is the villain others would say moby dick is the villain uh, what was the reason for making a, a giant sperm whale the villain yeah now that's a good question and obviously you know as you alluded to at the beginning all kinds of debate about all the different symbols and the characters which i think is one of the reasons why it survives I think, you know, it is important to really recognize that uh, most people were thinking about whales as a resource, as, um, as a, you know, a monster with a capital M, not too many, you know, the idea of sort of like flipper and dolphins and sort of like the environmental movement of the 1960s and 70s was a century away. And so Melville was really representing an ocean creature that was fierce. It had teeth. Um, and it was unknown to most people ashore. And Melville loved the sperm whale as a symbol because it could dive down so deep. And they didn't know how far it dove, but they knew how much rope it took out, and they knew how long it could stay down under the water. And so as a sort of symbol of, you know, an animal that could, you know, like explore the depths metaphorically. That was something that Melville loved. One of the great uh, parts of the book and the different cinematic versions of Moby Dick, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Richard J. King. You ch- check out his website at richardking.info. So a lot of richardjking.info, excuse me. There's a lot of great information on there, some great articles, some links to books that he's written. And uh, he's written uh, several books, including Ahab's Rolling Sea. A Natural History of Moby Dick. But one of the uh, great scenes in the film versions of Moby Dick has to do with Father Mapple. In that version from the 1950s, he's played brilliantly by Orson Welles, and he tells another whale story. And God prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, the sin of Jonah was in his disobedience of the command of God. He found it a hard command. And it was, shipmates, for all the things that God would have us do are hard. If we would obey God, we must disobey ourselves. But Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. I'm wondering, have you looked at that story that's told not only in the Bible, but of Mil- um, in Moby Dick, of uh, Jonah getting swallowed, or Job getting swallowed by the whale, and uh, what, if any, reality could there be scientifically behind that biblical story? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I think that uh, for Melville, and he really, you know, he spends a whole chapter kind of dissecting the Jonah story, and he uses it very early on with Father Mapple to kind of lay out just part of the idea that going to sea is the serious endeavor it is you know it can be fatal and it sort of and that the idea that um the whale can be an agent of god and Mm. so he's continually sort of thinking about 
Moby Dick, the white whale, as as potentially you know God's God's hand down giving judgment. Um, but in terms of sort of the reality of that, you know, Melville kind of jokes around with it. And I think, you know, if people haven't read Moby Dick before and they're thinking about picking it up, Melville really is joking a lot of the time. And I think a lot of times people go into it really seriously and they worry like, oh, is, is that for real? Like, is he pulling my leg? And Melville is often <laughs> trying to pull your leg. Um, so he kind of goes into that in Moby Dick of like, could that have really happened? And, you know, was was the sperm whale maybe even um, – in the Bible, maybe it was Leviathan is sort of unclear in the Bible. Is it a whale? Is it some kind of sea monster? And every once in a while, you do hear stories about, you know, that a, a, a hunter or a um, somebody in the water can actually, you know, find themselves in a whale's mouth. And um, there was one story down in the Southern Ocean, I think it's from the 1930s and 40s, where they supposedly found a whaleman's carcass in a uh in a large whale um i think it's probably (laughs) apocryphal but it's fun to think about um and you know it it, certainly sperm whales would you know when they were being attacked and uh they would you know sort of lash out at their attackers you know so they would smash the small boats every once in a while you do have those events where they would smash a larger ship and you know they're they're enormous animals in agony getting attacked, you know, and so it's pretty natural for them to respond in that way. I, I know the sperm whale was integral to whale oil, which was huge back in the 1840s and 1850s, and used for a lot of the uh, ways that we use petroleum today to power things, to light things. I'm sure that a lot of people were hunting the sperm whale for exactly that reason. What is the status of the sperm whale today? Is the sperm whale still around? How common is the sperm whale? What's the story today? Yeah, yeah, great question. Thanks. They, um, so that's, it's important to, to recognize the sort of difference between whaling under sail and kind of the Moby Dick era and then whaling in the 20th century where it becomes more industrial. So in, in Melville's era, when they didn't have engines, they didn't have steel hulls, they didn't have hydraulics, or, you know, they, uh, they didn't have explosive harpoons, they really could only catch that, the whales that they could catch up to by oar or sail. And those were sperm whales and right whales. Occasionally, they could get a humpback or a pilot whale or some smaller whales, but they were pretty limited. And so the whalers in the 19th century and even the 18th century did enormous uh, almost irreparable damage to the North Atlantic right whales, the North Pacific right whales, and the Southern right whales. But the Southern right whales have started to come come back. Sperm whales definitely were impacted for sure in the 19th century by whaling, particularly because they spent a lot of time with hunting young and females and sort of interrupting their social groups. Um, but the but the really enormous damage and sort of the plummeting of whaling um, comes in the 20th century when you have these larger whale ships that can, you know, like I mentioned, the big steel hulls, explosive harpoons, they can catch all whales, bay whales, blue whales, finback whales, and the sperm whales and and right whales were actually sort of secondary. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, whales are actually... That, you know, you don't want to like be too optimistic, but whales seem to be doing okay now. You know, as, there was an international moratorium. You know, there are still some. There is some whaling among, uh, including the sperm whale. The sperm whale is doing okay. 
Yeah, I mean, as far as they can tell, you know, the, the thing about it is like, how do you know? You know, it's right. It's like, if 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 people are like, how do you find out how many whales there are? Yes, it's really hard, and so. You can do some DNA modeling now. So some scientists have done really interesting population studies that way through DNA, but they're still counting by helicopter, by whale watch boats. And so some populations like in the Caribbean where you would think that they would be coming back up don't seem to be doing as well. But in the Pacific, the sperm whales seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, Joe in Um, Queens has a question for you, Richard. Joe, what's your question? Yeah, I wanted to ask, first of all, about the killer whales. I don't think they were involved at all. And also, uh, obviously, the boats could only cover so much. But theoretically, if they had full coverage, uh, where else would they have gone besides where they did go? Thanks, Joe. Yeah, um, I'll just the second one first. Um, yeah, so... What what actually happened with the whalers and you know they would slow they basically slowly moved from place to place hunting the right whales and the sperm whales and when they thought that no and Melville writes about this in Moby Dick he thinks basically that the the whales are sort of running away you know that they they always have the poles to hide up in Antarctica uh, and in the Arctic that they always have places that they can get away from these whalemen so. He and other whalers of his day thought that the whales were basically just sort of swimming away from them. But in fact, what they were doing was sort of slowly hunting down resident populations from place to place. And you can see that whalemen, you know, after that, the only reason they went into the Pacific was because there were no more whales that they could catch in the North Atlantic. And so they slowly kept creeping decade after decade until they were hunting up in the Bering Sea and up in the uh, far north Pacific trying to get these whales. You're you're such a wealth of knowledge. I could talk with you all day, but there's two final questions that I I have to ask you before we run out of time. One is I know there was an earlier book that predated Moby Dick called Mocha Dick. I've not read it. I'm not familiar with it. Do you know much about it? And was that kind of an inspiration to Melville in writing Moby Dick? Yeah, yeah. The the Reynolds story is probably fictional, but probably based on sailor's lore. And that was, um, I, I think it was actually in the magazine called The Knickerbocker. And that was came out in the 1830s. And it told about a white whale um, that was that uh, basically, you know, ran into ships that was really vicious and took a long time for a whaleman to catch. And that was a white whale. And Mocha is an island off of um, off of Chile. Lastly, so much of the story having to do with Moby Dick deals with essentially a whale having human, not only intelligence, but human emotions. He's vengeful. He wants vengeance. He lures sailors into doing different things. What do we know about the intelligence level and or the emotional intelligence level of a sperm whale in real life? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one thing that I think Melville does really, really cleverly in the novel is it's always a sort of layer of like that the the sailors think that perhaps the whale is vengeful or maybe Moby is luring them. But in the end, Moby doesn't kill Ahab. Ahab kills himself in the process of trying to hunt the whale. He's always hunting the whale. Um, but in terms of sort of modern day sentience and intelligence of sperm whales, we know that they teach their young. Um, biologists like Hal Whitehead have done these extraordinary studies where he kind of really has identified culture in whales, dialects among different groups, mm. 
teaching of each other, uh, their ability to learn. They sort of have these matriarchal pod family groups. And so they have learned a lot, but at the same time, there's just so much that they can't learn um, because it's, you know, Sure. It's hard to ask. Hey, uh, Richard, uh, the, I appreciate the time. This has just flown by. I hope you'll come back soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Richard King, you could check out his website and see some of his work at richardjking.com. A lot of interesting stuff uh, on there for people of all ages, children, adults, richardjking.com. Some interesting articles on there. And he was recently on an episode of The Greatest Show on the History Channel, The Unexplained with William Shatner. Check him out on there. The episode was about real-life sea monsters. Great episode. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 